Welcome to Occult Experiments in the Home, Magic, Spirituality and the Paranormal, in Personal Experience and in Practice. In that famous depiction presented by Eliphas Levi of the so-called Goat of Mendes, which has subsequently become associated with the god form Baphomet, that famous depiction of a creature half human, half animal, with a goat's head and an eagle's wings, the hooves of an animal and the scales of a snake. There's a pentacle on this creature's forehead at the place of the third eye. And as well as Baphomet, it's become associated with the figure of the devil, with Satan. But it was certainly not intended by Levi as a figure of evil. Because this is an entity, a deity, that very directly and vividly confronts us with the union of opposites. Human, animal, female, male, and good and evil as well, presumably. But where I want to start this episode is to draw attention to the words tattooed on the inner arms of Baphomet, which I shall take up as my preferred name for this gloriously zoomorphic and androgynous entity. Two words this god form has tattooed on its inner forearms. On the right arm, the word solve, and on the left, coagula. Solve et coagula, Latin for dissolve and coalesce. Solve on the right arm, pointing up heavenwards, Coagula on the left, pointing down towards the earth. If the function, the realm of this deity, is indeed the unification, perhaps the transcendence of opposites, then presumably this applies to solve et coagula also. Dissolving and coalescence presumably can both be brought together can both stand revealed as two aspects of one thing, maybe. One process, one alchemical process of which dissolving and coalescing are both parts. This is indeed the perspective that magic and the occult brings to the subject of this episode, concentration. In our mainstream culture, concentration the ability to focus, to direct our attention to one specific object or task and keep it focused there for extended periods of time. This is lauded as a completely positive thing, something that everyone, of course, should be seeking to develop. But alongside that, it seems very curious that people seem to complain more and more about an inability to concentrate and focus. Sometimes this is to an extent that is labelled as pathological in terms of awareness, in terms of attention. Too much solve and not enough coagula, not enough coalescence, concentration can lead to what's described as attention deficit disorder, which seems to be becoming an increasingly more common psychiatric diagnosis. The mainstream culture very much puts the emphasis on 
concentration, coagula, as the positive direction that one should seek to cultivate. But the figure of Baphomet seems to offer us some teachings that maybe take us in a different direction. If the dissolving of attention and the coalescence of attention are opposites, then if it seems that the dispersion of attention is a bad thing, perhaps it's too simplistic merely to assume that the opposite, being able to focus and really hold together attention very, very tightly. Maybe it's just too simplistic to assume that this is therefore a good thing. Because as the figure of Baphomet suggests, there's evidently a level on which the two are joined. And it's that level perhaps on which we might find a higher good. The level where dispersion of attention and coalescence of attention are merely two aspects of the same process. I've been practicing meditation for a good few decades now, and concentration is an important element in meditation, but it's not the full story. The sort of meditation I've practiced has generally been in the Buddhist tradition, and in surveys of all the very many different kinds of meditative practices, you'll often see them divided into two broad groups. On the one hand, vipassana, and on the other hand, shamatha. Vipassana is usually translated as insight. It's a investigative style of meditation, reflective, contemplative. The current trend for what we call mindfulness is a kind of watered-down vipassana practice where we turn our minds not to anything in particular, not to some stated object, but instead towards whatever we happen to be experiencing in that moment. And we look deeply at whatever that happens to be. We dissect it, take it apart with our minds, dissolve it, solve it. And then on the other side we have the shamatha practices. And these are the meditational equivalent of that left hand of Baphomet, the hand that points down to earth with the word coagula written on it. Because with these sorts of practices, we set out with an intention to cause something to manifest, to bring something into focus that isn't necessarily there at all in the beginning. The most common form of Shamatha practice, perhaps, is known as anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, the classic meditation of focusing on the sensations of the breath. What that brings into being that wasn't there before, first of all, on a literal level, is the sensations of the breath, as the name suggests, which often we're completely unaware of. But focusing on those sensations quickly becomes a springboard into various states of mind known as the jhanas. These are different forms, different flavours of concentration. So what this practice basically sets out to do is to create certain states of mind, all of which are very pleasurable in different ways. Shamatha practice is coagular. It kind of causes something to come into being, it makes something happen. 
the aim of it is very fundamentally to create pleasurable states of mind that weren't there at the outset. There are also shamatha practices with an interpersonal slant. They're not all focused on self-centered forms of bliss, far from it. Practices such as the metabhavna practices intended to generate feelings of loving-kindness towards others. These are also a form of shamatha. They involve bringing into being feelings, attitudes that may not have been there at the beginning or giving them extra intensity and activation. And also under the shamatha umbrella are those sorts of practices that involve focusing on images of specific deities perhaps, generally in order to generate feelings of devotion to that deity or a sense of connection, once again a means of coalescing the attention in order to bring something into existence, into experience that wasn't there before, or to heighten it, to boost it. It may be, won't have escaped your attention, that the downward-pointing left arm of Baphomet, Coagula, is extremely important in magic. What is magic if it's not using the mind, our intention? to bring something into existence, into experience, whether that's psychological or physical. Coagula, shamatha are basically forms of sorcery, the art of causing change in conformity with will, if you like. Take the idea of ritual. What is ritual other than a means to focus attention? in a specific direction. Think about your bog-standard chaos magic ritual, for instance, casting a sigil, perhaps. You formulate an intention, you make a representation of it, and then the main body of the ritual usually involves focusing the attention on that representation in a very intense way, whatever that happens to be, perhaps involving some kind of shift in mind state. And then at the end, dispelling it all, forgetting it all, coming out of that. In chaos magic, we talk about belief shifting. Beliefs are simply a primitive way of kind of funneling experience. Reality tunnels was the famous expression that Robert Anton Wilson used. In science, it's called confirmation bias. In science, it's a bad thing. You don't want to funnel awareness in a particular direction because that could lead to you missing something on the periphery. The techniques of science are more geared towards analysis, of course, towards solve rather than coagula. As magicians, of course, we consciously use what scientists call confirmation bias in order to buy into and create certain effects. So, it would seem that concentration, the focusing and directing of attention, produces effects that in certain contexts can be described as magical. The classic Buddhist texts on meditation, the Vishuddhimagga and the Vimuttimagga, 
they're both really clear too on this affinity between concentration and magical effects. And they describe how by cultivating certain quite refined states of concentration, you can cultivate psychic powers, also called siddhis, which include things that in the West we might describe as telepathy, precognition, clairvoyance, as well as contact and visionary encounters with discarnate beings. In our last episode, we looked at telepathy, and it was remarked there how telepathy seems especially to take root in contexts where there's a relationship that might be particularly intimate or heightened or intensified due to certain circumstances. Again, this idea of attention, heightened, focused, coalesced to an extraordinary degree, giving rise to the manifestation of something extraordinary. So, sorcery and concentration very much seem to constitute the left arm of Baphomet, but the right arm that points upwards and bears the word solve. I think perhaps relates more to the mystical orientation of magic and occultism. Rather than concentrating and coalescing, this side of things is about analysing, taking apart and seeing through. And when we take this to the extreme, when we take reality completely apart, what we're left with is emptiness or the divine and we experience ourselves as merged with that. I think that image of Baphomet is showing us, teaching us, that as occultists we practice, we cultivate both. But it's concentration that appropriately I'm going to be focusing on and highlighting and bringing intensely into our awareness because this is the one that seems most fraught in the present moment. Maybe, as human beings, we're all a little bit like Baphomet. Having a human mind means being a little bit solve on the one hand and a little bit coagular on the other. Although we've had a good deal of mileage out of that binary opposition so far, And it's thrown up some perhaps useful distinctions that have enabled us to consider some interesting ideas. Like all dualities, it's actually a bit of an illusion. Baphomet is nothing if not rigorously non-binary. And it doesn't take too much probing before the dualities that we've explored so far start to fall apart. I hope that over the course of all the previous episodes I've done lots to suggest how the apparent distinction between sorcery and mysticism is perhaps more apparent than it is real. And when we turn our attention to that other distinction we've looked at between concentration practices, shamatha, and insight practices, vipassana, it's remarkable how quickly that falls apart too. Shamatha and Vipassana stand in a kind of yin-yang relationship to one another. Each of them is the precondition for the existence of the other. 
in the case of Vipassana, insight meditation, it's pretty clear that in order for any insight to occur, there has to be a little bit of focus, a little bit of concentration. To get any insight at all, you need to have an intention to get that insight and you need to sit down and focus and direct your awareness into whatever practice it is that you happen to be doing. It's maybe a little less obvious that the opposite is also true. For there to be some concentration, there has to be some insight, some analysis, some reflection as well. When people have asked me about meditation and concentration practice in particular, the advice I've often found myself giving is that with concentration practice, doesn't matter what kind it is, the best thing to do is just to go absolutely crazy with it. Often what we tend to overlook is the extent to which we can really, really throw ourselves into concentration practice. So if you're focusing on your breath, the sensations of the breath, just go nuts. Really throw your awareness at it with everything it's got. Notice every tiny little millisecond of sensation as you're breathing, 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 breathing in and breathing, breathing, breathing out. Just go absolutely crazy. Let it fill your awareness. Really pump some energy into it. I think that really is the secret and the key to concentration practice. You can go extreme, and you should make your attention as white-hot and as intense as you can. That's what it's all about. But having said that, this is where the dependence of concentration upon insight also starts to become apparent. Because it is actually possible to focus too tightly on the object of the concentration practice. If we focus too exclusively on the breath, there won't be any space in our awareness for the experience of the jhanas to arise. And that's the whole point of concentration practice, to move through those ever more refined and blissful states of concentration. There needs to be a little bit of reflecting going on, a little bit of noticing how the focusing is affecting the mind state and then adjusting the focus accordingly to the changes that you notice. The Buddhist teacher Lee Brassington brings this out and gives some really good advice, I think. If the breath gets very, very subtle, he says, Instead of taking a deep breath, shift your attention away from the breath to a pleasant sensation. This is key. There is not much point in trying to notice the breath that has gotten extremely subtle or has disappeared completely. There's nothing left to notice. This offers us, I think, a way to start to crack into what concentration itself is actually about, what this thing is. If we look at contemporary psychological explorations or studies of concentration, as is very typical of psychology, unfortunately, these days, what we'll usually find there is concentration reduced to its behavioural manifestations. 
concentration will tend to be talked about as a means to an end in terms of what it enables us to do rather than what it actually might be in itself. And that advice from Lee Brassington is taking us in a very different direction to the psychological approach. This practice that we're talking about is focusing on the breath. But Brassington is advising us at a particular point to stop doing that, to stop focusing on the breath. Because this practice isn't about doing something per se, it's about cultivating concentration itself. It's about getting into those jhana states regardless of whatever the object happens to be. It's about arriving at pure naked concentration and as I've suggested that implies leaving a little bit of room for reflection, analysis and insight as well. So Brassington advises us when we've focused on the breath and we've become relaxed and maybe we become relaxed to an extent that the breath is almost not noticeable anymore. What he advises us to do is to transfer the attention to a pleasant sensation. If you can do that, he says, the sensation will begin to grow in intensity. It will become stronger. This will not happen in a linear way. At first, nothing happens. Then it will grow a little bit, and then hang out, and grow a little bit more. And then eventually, it will suddenly take off and take you into what is obviously an altered state of consciousness. Buddhism is a religion full of lists, and one of those lists is relevant here. The list of the factors of concentration, the bits, the parts, the conditions that give rise to concentration make it possible. That rush of pleasant feeling that Brassington describes a number of words in English are used to label it. Things like rapture, euphoria, ecstasy, delight. We'll stick with rapture, I think. Rapture is an important component of concentration. That advice I gave earlier about really going mad when you do concentration practices, really throwing yourself into it with as much intensity as you can muster, that can also be a way to arrive at this rapturous feeling, this sense of delight and wow and wonderment at the experience of whatever it is that you happen to be focusing upon. On the list of the factors of concentration, there are generally five items, and the translation of them can be a bit problematic, of course. But generally, what concentration consists of is, first of all, bringing the mind to the object, and when it wanders, bringing it back. Secondly, keeping the mind there once it's focused. So not just pointing it in the right direction, but holding it in that direction when it's facing in the right way. The third factor is this rapture that we talked about, really taking an interest and delight in whatever it is that we're focusing upon. This can have quite a visceral, physical dimension to it. 
But if you can stay with that and not get freaked out or overwhelmed by it, then a fourth factor comes in, which is more emotional rather than visceral, and gets described simply by the English word happiness. We become content with whatever it is that we're focusing on. Content to just stay there and do that. It feels good to do that. Personally speaking, and maybe this is because I'm a bit of an anxious type, I'd describe it as having almost an element of relief in it. A kind of, oh, at last, this is okay. This is this is fine. I can stay here. And indeed, if you can do that, if you can just stay there with that, without trying to do anything, just allowing that to happen, then this is the first jhana. This is your gateway into the first jhana and all the other ones that follow. The point I really want to highlight here is how concentration incorporates and generates rapture and happiness, delight from whatever it is that we're focusing on, and happiness in just being with that thing. And maybe we can start to get an inkling here of why the whole issue of concentration can become a little bit fraught if there's a sense that we should be concentrating more than we are. And then when we sit down and try to do this thing that we feel we should be doing, we find that we can't. I was reading a mainstream article online by a psychologist who was saying that concentration is a good thing because when we concentrate we do things more efficiently and we save time. Well, (laughs) suppose you're engaged in an activity that generates rapture and happiness. Would you say it's important to get that finished as quickly as possible? To get into that and get it over with as instantly as you can. Two very different notions of concentration seem to be in play here. The mainstream one seems to be that concentration is a means of connecting with the object. Whereas what that Buddhist approach seems to imply is that concentration is the connection with the object. Because the factors of concentration aren't just about directing the attention towards the object. They also include rapture and happiness. Being in the presence of the object feels good. And this is also evident in occultism. The whole point of ritual is not that it serves as a means to an end. The ritual is itself the experience that our intention is fulfilled or going to be fulfilled. From this perspective, concentration is a bit like loving, a bit like being in love. Love creates the beloved, love brings us into the presence of the beloved. And in the same way, in concentration, we can only concentrate, we can only be concentrating when we experience the object as good. The rapture and the happiness are indispensable aspects. Without that, it's as if, with the mainstream view of concentration, the object is somehow expected to become the beloved 
in the absence of any feelings of love towards it. If concentration is the connection, rather than somehow a means to a connection, then there can only be concentration on objects that are capable of bringing us rapture and happiness. In terms of spiritual and magical practice, there can be a lot of confusion around this and it can cause some real difficulties. And unfortunately, I've had some very direct experience of this myself from having fallen into some of that confusion. I've had the good fortune to have been on a number of retreats. Some of them were Vipassana retreats and some were Shamatha concentration retreats. And all of them were quite tough in different ways, as going on retreat often can be. But it has been the concentration retreats on which I've found myself getting my ass kicked particularly badly. On the first of these, about three days in, suddenly, completely unexpectedly, I found myself leaning over the toilet bowl and screaming and um, having a panic attack and being convinced that I was about to die. All of which took me completely by surprise. I'd never experienced anything like that before and really couldn't see where it had come from. And on the second retreat, at a similar point, about three or four days in, this time I felt myself experiencing an absolutely crushing depression. My life seemed absolutely pathetic and pointless. Luckily, I did find a way through both of these dilemmas to varying degrees. But it wasn't until a third concentration retreat where, when the difficulties started to arise again at the same point, about three or four days in, I was at last this time able to see a little bit more clearly what was happening and also what I was doing wrong. The Vipassana retreats I'd been on had been tough, but in comparison I'd found them far easier and they'd been tough in a different way. In Vipassana we're analysing, investigating, reflecting on the nature of experience. And when challenging stuff comes up, although sometimes it's wise to take a break, power things down a bit and maybe come back to things a bit later when it's feeling less intense, generally the way forwards is to keep going with the analysing, reflecting, investigating, but incorporating those difficult experiences or feelings, whatever they happen to be, incorporating that into the investigation, seeing that as just more grist for the analytical meal. What went wrong on the concentration retreats, what my mistake was there, was mistakenly to assume that I could use the same tactic to get through attempt somehow to analyse my way out of it. On a concentration retreat you spend hours and hours and days and days stoking up your degree of concentration to a extraordinary degree that in comparison to the everyday is utterly intense, utterly crazy. If we pick up our earlier analogy of concentration as being a bit like being in love, then a full-on concentration retreat is like reaching a point where 
You can fall utterly in love with anything that you turn your attention to. Anything can become a source of incredible fascination and absorption. Because the mind so easily falls in love with anything that we choose to turn it towards, then the mind becomes incredibly malleable. We can turn it in any direction that we want to and focus our attention minutely and for very long periods of time. It's like becoming the mental equivalent of a elite bodybuilder. Your mind, as it were, is rippling with muscles. It was pointed out to me by the wonderful Daniel Ingram on the second retreat what I'd rather stupidly done, which was having got my mind into this pumped-up, muscle-bound state, what I then proceeded to do was to start to review and think about my life and where I was and where I was going. Because things had started to feel a bit intense, then I'd gone searching within for the reasons for that, looking for some kind of fault in me. And because my mind was in a hyped-up, concentrated state, all that I'd succeeded in doing was absolutely taking myself apart, shredding my life apart. And so was it really any wonder that I ended up feeling as if everything was pointless and meaningless and just a pile of smoking ruins? I'd learnt the hard way that the approach on a concentration retreat has to be different from the approach on a Vipassana retreat. On a Vipassana retreat where insight fails, where you're not getting where it feels that you need to go, then more analysis and reflection on that experience will hopefully in the end prove helpful. But on a concentration retreat where things get challenging in a different way, where reality can sometimes seem to start to ripple and bend a little bit because our attention to it has become so extraordinarily intense, then you can't analyse your way out of that because the mind will seize onto that analysis with the same intensity as it's seizing on with intensity to everything else. If you punch yourself in the face with an arm that you've made really, really strong, then you just end up punching yourself in the face harder. A concentration retreat is more like a psychedelic or entheogenic experience. You can end up experiencing intense mental states, but that's why you're there. That's the point of the retreat, to heighten the mind in that way. And likewise, as with a psychedelic experience, the key to navigating a concentration retreat is more along the lines of surrendering to the experience, riding it out, opening up and letting it happen. The attitude I'd taken towards the heightened concentration ended up being very similar to that I've described as the mainstream view of concentration. Rather than entering into it, going with it, opening to it, appreciating it as the object, as the connection with the thing, what I'd done instead was attempt to instrumentalise the concentration, use it as a means to an end. 
things had felt a bit strange, so I'd gone looking for an explanation for that, rather than accepting that intensity simply for what it was, remaining connected with it. The reason for this, I suspect, is largely to do with my nature, my character. I have what the Buddhists describe as a very aversive mind. My mind is naturally quite critical, analytical. I tend to seek to understand things by taking them apart, destroying them, rather perhaps than getting close to them and merging with them. Having a critical, analytical mind has certain advantages, but what was on display in what I've just described, I think, were very much the disadvantages. Sometimes, quite often, I think, the way to deal with challenges is not to analyse or deconstruct them, but instead to open up, surrender and flow with them. To concentrate, then, you have to flow. You have to kind of be in love with whatever it is you're hoping to concentrate on. And I wonder if that personal difficulty I experienced during those retreats isn't maybe just limited to me. That mistake I made, maybe other people make that mistake or have made that mistake as well. And maybe it happens in contexts other than just retreats. In my work as a counsellor and just in cultural discourse in general these days, I think, I come across more and more this sense that people feel as if they need to be able to concentrate more in order to be more productive. We started by considering the left hand of Baphomet and how coagula is what brings things more vividly into physical manifestation. How concentration can be used magically to bring things into experience. But the way concentration enables things to manifest is open to different ways of understanding perhaps and maybe also to misunderstanding. One way of looking at what concentration does is perhaps in terms of productivity. Manifestation in the sense of producing something, causing something to come into being or to happen. But as we've seen when we've approached concentration from Buddhism and from magic, from ritual, that's maybe not quite right or maybe not quite the whole story. It's not quite right to say that concentration produces anything but maybe more accurate to say that it is the connection to that thing. And whereas it's maybe always possible to some extent to be able to cause or produce something, because all that depends upon is us taking some kind of action, on the other hand it's not always possible to connect. Because to connect with something requires the initiation within us of a reaching out towards whatever it is and we won't reach out we can't reach out 
if it doesn't seem to us that the object is good, if it doesn't seem to us that in some way the object doesn't wear the face of the beloved. Productivity or the achievement of a specific goal doesn't always wear that face. And in that case, all we've got at our disposal is brute action. We just have to go through the motions. Try as we might, concentration won't arise because the conditions for it simply aren't there. Concentration requires, at the very least, to begin with, the direction of attention towards something. But suppose we direct our attention towards something and we discover in its place something terrifying. No concentration occurs in the face of something terrifying. If something unpleasant suddenly arises, then our mind recoils from it. It doesn't go towards it. To concentrate, we have to become aware of what's going on within the mind. But suppose for a moment that somebody has had repeated experiences in their life that have suggested to them that for some reason they're bad or that they're insignificant, they don't matter. Or maybe that in some sense they're so insignificant they don't exist at all or don't have a right to exist. With pre-assumptions like that about oneself, what will happen when we turn our attention inwards towards ourselves? We might be confronted with that badness, that insignificance, that lack of existence. And in that case, it's difficult to see how concentration could occur. But instead, the mind would perhaps recoil from its own contents. Instead of a gradual focusing into rapture and happiness and connection... There might instead be a scattering or a shutting down or a distraction to something else. Someone could still be productive, someone could still be perfectly functional to a large degree, but they might be limited to some extent in terms of the depth and range of things to which they can really feel connected. The psychoanalyst Donald Woods Winnicott had this concept of things that he called primitive agonies. He wrote, anxiety is not a strong enough word here. And indeed, anxiety doesn't seem to be the right word because these primitive agonies aren't to do with feelings about any sort of thing, but seem to be terrors, horrors that relate from the fact of us having a mind in the first place. They're like basic primitive terrors of things that could happen to our mind itself. And he gives a list of examples. The first one is a return to an unintegrated state. So basically what he's talking about there is a fear that the mind will fall apart, fall into bits. And he says that a defence against this happening is often disintegration, kind of preempting that happening by falling apart yourself before that could take place. Next one on the list, falling forever, 
a sense of just being in free fall, nothing holding you. And he mentions that sometimes a defence against this can become manifest in a kind of self-holding. Other ones include things like loss of the sense of reality and loss of the capacity to relate to objects. It seems to me that perhaps this could be a level at which it makes sense to think about what might be going on when we experience disturbances in concentration. In concentration, the mind directs attention in towards itself. But this idea of primitive agonies suggests that there can be terrors, there can be horrors that have to do not with threats to the mind from outside itself, but the mind, in a sense, feeling as if it's not going to be able to keep itself going for some reason from inside. And again, it's partly personal experience that's prompting me to suggest this. On those concentration retreats, I became aware for the first time of a terror that would manifest itself in panic attacks, of finding myself somehow in a place where I was completely cast out, completely lost and forgotten about, and no one would ever find me there, and I would be trapped there forever, as if my mind were cut off from other people and the outside world. And Winnicott's idea of primitive agonies very much resonated with me in regard to this. On the one hand, experiencing this on retreat was pretty horrible. But on the other hand, it's the case that when you go on retreat, this kind of thing is what you sign up for, in a way. Retreats and meditation practices can allow such things to rise to the surface. And the positive side of that is once they come into awareness and it's possible to start to understand them and try to work with them, heal them. My mistake was to try and do what I habitually try to do, which is to try to analyse it, to take it apart. But that's a Vipassana approach and this thing had surfaced because of building my concentration. Primitive agonies, as Winnicott describes them, are perhaps all, in a sense, the mind's own terror of itself. The only way out of this situation is through finding a way to ride it out, to deepen the concentration and connect until it becomes apparent that 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 terror isn't real which can only be done by letting go and somehow finding the rapture and the happiness that will come, hopefully, from the mind connecting with itself. I came across a really interesting podcast recently called The Dang Lantern Podcast by a guy named Dan Latner. His descriptions of his experiences really chimed with me, but also struck me as being very different from my own. And it made me wonder whether we might all be carrying different primitive agonies inside ourselves and being called upon to deal with them in all sorts of different ways. Dan describes how he'd always felt a bit different from other people. 
And then he stumbled across Gabor Mate's book, Scattered Minds, which explores attention deficit disorder. And on reading this, Dan had a massive realisation that what was described in the book seemed to match perfectly his own experience. And he felt like he understood himself better and he felt more in touch with himself and he could also see a way forward for himself. He mentions that he'd been practising meditation for a while and had always kind of regarded it as what he describes as a kind of boredom endurance training. But suddenly something seemed to have shifted for him after coming to an awareness that he might be somebody who has attention deficit disorder. And then he finds himself in the midst of an awakening experience without having had any prior knowledge that such a thing was even possible. Dan was aware that there are quite a few neurologists doing research into spiritual awakening. So he contacted a medical professional to let them know what was happening. But unfortunately this led to a rather unpleasant brush with the Canadian psychiatric establishment during which it was impressed upon Dan that spiritual experiences aren't real and his current state of happiness was pathological. It's a story of spiritual awakening that's very different from the ordinary, if there is such a thing. And I recommend listening to his podcast from the beginning where he tells the full story. What struck me about Dan's story was how his realisation that he might have ADD seemed as if it had somehow laid the ground for the awakening experience that followed. It was almost as if it somehow enabled him in a way to come home to himself, to see who he was and what he was like and really get that for the first time. And I can't help thinking whether that opening, that connecting with himself enabled him to engage with the meditation he was doing less as a boredom endurance exercise but suddenly with some real concentration in the sense that his mind could suddenly connect really really fully with itself and see itself for precisely what it was and then of course an awakening experience followed. Supposedly, concentration is what someone with ADD has difficulty with. But in Dan's story, there seems to be a sense that realising that he might be someone with ADD, that didn't confront him with a sense of something that he couldn't do, maybe, but merely with the realisation that there was something that perhaps he wasn't doing. And in terms of his meditation practice, uh, suddenly that seemed to turn around completely. In my own case as well, I think I was confronted with something, not that I couldn't do, but that I wasn't doing, which was opening up, connecting, surrendering, rather than trying to analyse and tear things down which is my normal way of going about things. Concentration isn't a means of connection. It is the connection. 
But this is very far from the mainstream view where the emphasis seems to be very much on productivity and achievement of goals rather than a deep and loving connection with whatever it is that we want to concentrate upon. Generally speaking, you're only going to find concentration regarded as a means to an end in psychology and psychiatry. An understanding and an appreciation of what concentration is in itself, you're only going to find if you turn to the fields of spirituality or occultism. But never mind, because here you are. Well, that's it for this episode. Don't forget you can support the podcast and access additional material on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash O-E-I-T-H if you'd like to find out more details. And in any case, as ever, I hope we get to speak again soon. Bye-bye.